0: I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel Rubel, and this is One On One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Welcome back to Matan's One On One Parsha podcast, where we spend about 30 minutes discussing deep thematic points about the Parsha. Our podcast series on Shmot focuses on identity and nationality formation. We're going to try and address the big biblical themes of slavery, redemption, society building, and commitment to a binding code of law, as well as explore together with our guests how we can anchor these big ideas in our modern lives. If you would like to sponsor a podcast episode in honor or memory of a loved one, please contact the Matan office via telephone or email us at podcast at podcast.matan.org.il. Parshat Yitro is one of Shemot's most monumental parshiot. It opens with the reunion of Moshe with the rest of his family, with his father-in-law Yitro and his wife and children. Yitro first listens to Moshe's recounting of recent miraculous events, and then verbally recognizes God's greatness, demonstrating the exact Ideat Hashem, awareness of God, that God tries to instill in the Egyptians through the plagues. After this, following the true ways of the wise, Yitro observes Moshe's judiciary leadership and then offers unsolicited advice. Create a system of judiciary delegation to relieve yourself from the burdens of adjudicating over each and every case. This reminds me of the time I once recounted to a friend that my evening routine with my two little girls was exhausting me. I was bathing them separately, not yet able to see that my younger daughter was big enough to now bathe together with the older one. My friend brilliantly suggested that I begin bathing them together. It was an obvious but incredibly energy-saving solution. This is one of the several places in the Torah where we learn that sometimes we need an external objective perspective to notice the unhelpful patterns we have become blind to. Sometimes we are just too on the inside to notice them ourselves, even when we are the ones suffering the most. The establishment of a human judicial system forms a moving introduction to the receiving of divine law on Sinai. The second half of the Parsha recounts the preparation for and receiving of the Ten Commandments. While this will not be the focus of today's episode, next week's episode will hopefully shed tremendous light on this unprecedented contractual agreement between the Jewish people and God. Today I am pleased to welcome back to the podcast, Yael Leibowitz, who joined us for episode 48 on Parshat Tzav, where we spoke about two distinct purity systems in the Book of Vayikra. Yael is a beloved Matan lecturer who is currently taking part in Matan's first cohort of the Kitfuni Fellowship, created to promote the publication of high-level Torah scholarship by women. The initiative provides female Torah scholars with the support necessary to facilitate their ability to complete a book in a field of Torah scholarship. Yael is writing on the book of Ezra and exploring the revolutionary strategies employed by the Jewish leaders of the early Second Temple period as they grappled with the unprecedented challenge of reconstituting a lost world in an utterly new one. A quick note before we begin. As you all well know, high sound quality is a priority for the production team behind this podcast. We experienced unprecedented technical issues with the L side of the conversation, and for several reasons, we're not able to re-record it. Please stick with us despite the background noises, which slightly improved midway through the episode. The content is well worth it. Yael, it is a pleasure to have you back on the podcast. Thanks so much, and it's so much fun to be back. <laughs> So we're going to jump right in to Parshat Yitro. and, you know, there's something very jarring about opening up what we know is about to be the monumental moment we receive, uh, the Aseret HaDibrot, and we open it up with this encounter between a, let's call a spade a spade, a Midianite priest with uh, with Moshe. So, we have a general question about the marriage between Moshe and a Midianite woman, which is sort of another question altogether. But we open up this parsha, and here we have Yitro coming to speak with Moshe after there clearly is some background here that we're not told about straight out in the psukim. There clearly is some background here uh, that the Midrashim in as well about why Moshe essentially had been separated from the rest of his family. But whatever that background might be, they come and reunite at the beginning of our parsha, And we have Yitro and his very prominent voice. And it's sort of what, what begins this process of receiving the Torah. So I'm curious what you think about that, where, where that sort of sends you uh, against a broader backdrop of, of Tanakh itself.
1: Yeah, so it's, it's a really good question. It's an important theme. You know, whenever my students know this, whenever we talk, whenever we learn uh, narrative within Tanakh, so I try as often as possible to sort of redirect the obvious question which comes to mind whenever we learn anything, which is why did this happen, uh, which is a fair question, but I try to redirect it to not why did it happen so much as why does the Tanakh feel that this portion of the narrative or this component of our national story is significant enough to record and to write down. There's millions of things we're curious about that we'll never know because the Tanakh just didn't, didn't record it. And then we have these tiny little episodes of, you know, for example, Yitro coming and speaking with Moshe, and it's recorded, like you mentioned, not just in the middle of the desert, sort of, you know, during this downtime in the desert, but literally in between these two seminal events of the war with Amalek, which comes on the heels of the Israel once again, sort of doubting God's presence in their midst and doubting God's ability to protect them and to sustain them, and that's the juxtaposition on one side, and then followed by, like you mentioned, Matan Torah. So what's Yitro doing here? And why does the Tanakh feel that that episode is worth mentioning right after and right before these two really, really critical pieces of our history?
0: I so- believe well, I mentioned one other point that sort of highlights this question even more is that most of the Parshanim think that this episode didn't actually chronologically take place Correct. here uh, and that there are many, many hints of the fact that it took place after the acceptance of the Esther Hadib wrote, which highlights the question even more. Again, we're not going to get into right. the chronology of it here. Why now? Right. What is Correct. this? What is this narrative coming to offer us?
1: Exactly. Right. So it's, it's sort of it almost sort of not just it, it doubles the, the significance of the question. Why is it recorded altogether? And. Why, if it's not necessarily in a chronologically correct location, then why is it specifically put in between these two two narratives? So I I think this touches upon a topic that is something we sometimes miss. Not entirely sure why we miss this really, really critical piece of learning Tanakh. It could be on some level because we've created these dichotomies in our minds, um between, you know, Israelites and non-Israelites or between the good guys and the bad guys in history, the way we sort of like to have these dualities, uh, because they're neat and they're clean and they help us keep categories uh black and white. But I, I think that Yitro is really a perfect example of one of the ways in which Tanakh uses others, and I'm gonna use other with sort of the capital O, to help us really understand who we are as a people. One of the things that that, you know, we sort of know, we know this on a very basic human level, right? You mentioned you're putting your two children in the bath. So one of the things we know about family structures or family dynamics, for example, is that a sibling is always going to sort of define their identity in contrast to or in distinction from the sibling. So I read a great line, and I have no idea where I read this years ago in a book somewhere, you know, that siblings take up the space that their siblings haven't already you know, sort of aren't already taking up within the family unit, right? So we all do that on some level, and I'm using siblings as an example just because so many people can relate to this phenomenon, but it happens in all different broader dynamics. And the Tanakh understands this very, very basic component of identity. Uh, by the way, it's not exclusive to humans. If we go back to Sefer sheet. so the milim manchot, the words that sort of describe or define the act of creation itself, there's two words, we always think bara, is the only word the the act, you know the act of creation itself, but the act of creation really happens through distinction, right? Via Elokim, God distinguishes light from darkness, water from dry land, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And so it's only through the act of distinguishing something and then naming it, calling it what it is, which is really sort of circumscribing it, right? It is this because it is not this. It is dry land because it's no longer covered in water. So that act of distinction that happens sort of on the we might call elemental level in Brishit happens in family units, as we've described, and then it really happens, I think, nationally for for us as a people. If we think about the way Hashem talks to us about how we should behave, right? So we're standing in the Midbar and we get all the rules and, you know, it, it says, for example, I'll just read the Pasuk, it says, mm-hmm. It says, right? I, am, I am your God. And then it, it sort of defines who we are by, by who we are not, meaning it distinguishes us from the land we left, and it's distinguishing us uh, sort of preemptively from the land towards which we're headed. It says, So this concept of Kedusha, right, Kedushim is not just be sanctified, it means literally maintain distinction through your behaviors. Don't do what they did in Egypt, don't do what they're doing in Canaan. you have to be different somehow. And it's a really interesting phenomenon, this notion that we can only truly understand who we are through who we are not, right? We mentioned Yosef, know, we were talking last week when we were talking about Leon Kass's book on sheet and I, I don't want to go, you know, I don't want to get on too much of a tangent, but the whole concept of Migdal Bavel, that, episode where humanity looks around and they're like, hey, let's build a city and a wall around, a migdal and a wall around it, and let's all be exactly the same is the precursor to Hashem not just dispersing them, but dispersing them followed up by choosing Avraham to be distinct. And, And on some level, the Tanakh is very clear about the idea that there's no such thing really as this universalistic way of it doesn't mean we shouldn't have world peace right but it means not everyone should not be exactly the same that israel is meant to be one thing and other nations are meant to be other things and we can only maintain our understanding of ourselves when we can distinguish ourselves from others when we use the behaviors of others to reflect on who we are, what makes us unique.
0: Okay, so I, you're making a biblical point, but it's actually really a philosophical point. And I think that there's so many directions that this can be taken in. And I guess I just wanna add one point, which is maybe even to jump to like the the end result of of a thought process like this. As you said so eloquently, we see that in Safer Sheet There's a broad universal vision and then it slowly sort of makes its way and we get to that point at at Perik bit specifically right when we start with Avraham or it happens even a little bit earlier. Uh, And I agree with you that all of the the laws that were given are there essentially to create a unique um, moral character and religious character both uh, to the people of Israel. But what's really interesting is that when you get to like the later prophets is that that's where we do have concepts of of a universality. Now it's it's a universality though that can only grow healthily out of having a clear distinct vision of who Amisrael is. Meaning there's a reason why that universality which you can, you know, showing up later in Yishayahu or 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 in Zechariah or other other later prophets, there's a reason why I would think exactly in light of what you said why it starts showing up there because only once we've created something really really distinct can we then become Uh, Can we see ourselves along the broader scale of the nations? And so I think that there's so many questions here philosophically of what what ideally should be the difference between how this plays out in a diaspora situation versus in the land of Israel, right? Right. Those changes of geography make a tremendous difference in how successful we're able to maintain a distinct national identity. But even just on the biblical level, which is where we're going to stick today, that's a really important piece, that those universalistic visions come after all of the particularity of the laws come to really mold who we are as a people.
1: So, yes, 100 percent. I'll say a couple of things about the universalist. You know, again, I don't know exactly which psukim. I'm guessing the psukim, let's say Nishayahu, you're talking about, you know. Um, the right? The, the sense that everyone is going to be davening or praying or, or somehow going up to the Beit Hashem. And Zecharia, again, I, I don't know. I'm assuming you're talking about the notion of Orla L'Goyim. And
0: the 14th chapter, right? We but, read on Sukkot, right? But, correct,
1: right? So the Orla L'Goyim, or the notion that you know non-Israelites or non-Jews are going to be holding on the Me'il of the Jews that are going to be. But you know, again, there, unless I'm under- misunderstanding it, I, I still think it's, there's a universal. There's this a vision of. Universal recognition of God as God. I don't necessarily think that there's ever a concept of a universal adherence to mitzvot, right? Like the uncle Moshe. No, no, agree Mishayaf with you. Comes. No, we're saying the same that's, thing, right? Okay, yeah. Yes. So I think that's huge. Listen, I think it's also important to remember that you know, contemporary with Zechariah and you know, depending on where you put Yeshayahu, there was also the voice of Ezra and Nehemiah, which are you know, super particularistic and not just particularistic, but uh, sort of shunning right. the attempts. Of people to join the community, who in earlier periods may have been included in the community, and redefining who a Jew is based on Zerah Kadosh, the notion of a you know a pure uh, seed as opposed to just a cultural uh, you know ethnic identity based on geographical boundaries. But you know, um, I, I think what you're saying is really really important. The once we spread out throughout the different lands, once J- Judaism, what evolves into later to Judaism, is no longer. Uh, sort of defined by the geographical boundaries of Israel, but becomes something portable that goes with the Israelites into, you know, Babylon, into Egypt. So then, like you're saying, I guess the potential uh, to be in Orla Goyim is really raised for the first time. But yes, we should probably yeah. stick to the Tanakh, <laughs> to earlier periods. I yeah,
0: we're going gonna to stick to Tanakh. We're going to end the philosophy <laughs> section of the podcast. <laughs> and, and we're going to go back to, to Yitro. You mentioned before Itro as the other. So, what what did you what do you mean by that, and how does that connect to other other places in Tanah? So, I think I,
1: you know, I think like I mentioned, you know, these sort of dualities that we like to imagine us versus them. There certainly are examples of that in Tanakh. And without the evil other, let's say, right, just to sort of stereotype, without the evil other, a lot of the narratives that help us understand ourselves also wouldn't exist. So you can't have Yitzhak Mitzrayim, you can't have God proving himself on the world stage as the ultimate, you know, deity. If Pyro is not resisting that concept and resisting that claim, you can't have, um, you know, I don't know, you can't have David proving that it has nothing to do with physical prowess, it's all about who God decides should be victorious in battle, without the goliaths of the world. So there are certainly the other and the most obvious category. Again, other with the capital O that I'm sort of b- st- drawn to are the others that aren't as obviously anathema to Israel and everything Israel stands for. We have, sorry I'll back up a second, I think one of the things that I think is so fascinating is that these personalities that are sort of outsiders in the literal sense, right, they're not born Israelite, they don't necessarily belong to the nation, are behave in so many ways so much more Israelite than the Israelites are behaving at that time. And in many ways, they really shine a light on where we're lacking as a people, and what in theory, behaviorally, we should really be striving for, towards, right? So I mentioned you know, you mentioned the juxtaposition of Yitro coming right after, or right before Matan Torah, but Yitro also comes right after Amalek, when we're doubting God. And Yitro unabashedly says, Baruch Hashem asher paro, and then, you know, he doesn't just say, oh my gosh, that's amazing that God did that to you, but then he sort of takes it to the next logical consequence, which is I'll just read about it, right? He says, Atayadati ki gadol Hashem ha'elokim, Which is literally the purpose of Yitziat Mitzrayim and, and Kriyat Yamsuf was Lamanti daki in kamoni And Yitro sort of echoing the sentiments of the intention or the intent of Yitziat Mitzrayim is such a powerful statement in the context of the people who had experienced it firsthand who still weren't able to articulate or to adhere to a vision like that and whose uh, ambivalence was still the most prominent emotion, I guess, sort of coursing through community. And we have this all over the place.
0: So last week, we spoke with uh, Rachel Sharansky-Danziger about the idea of that real, as you called it, ambivalence. Now, the word that's used in the Parshiot is is nicham, is actually to regret, right? It doesn't use the word ambivalence, it uses the word regret. And I, I agree with you that that's such an important contrast. So on one hand, I want to use the language of foil, that what you're suggesting is sometimes these others with the capital O come to really present a foil for how we're behaving. And and as you said, it, it shines a light on, on where we are, um, a great a interesting example, which maybe is opening up a Pentora's box, is kind of Vashti and Astaire. <laughs> yeah. uh, Vashti is interesting foil to Astaire. But I, I think that the sort of psychological human truth that this idea reflects is that sometimes we need, you know, in the introduction I said that sometimes people on the outside can see bad patterns and help us get out of them, but I think it reflects something else, which is that sometimes if we don't have that confidence here, it's in the belief in God or in God's hand in history, sometimes it's really helpful to draw upon that confidence from someone on the outside, because when you're in the inside, it's way too stressful, right? Yeah. Meaning each row didn't have to go through this process, and therefore it's a little bit easier for him to reflect positively and, and be all excited about, about God's role in history. But when yeah. we're the ones who had to walk through the sea and and hope that we weren't going to die. So it's a little bit more difficult to feel rosy. I mean, it happens all the time when like somebody goes to an an episode in their life that's positive, but because they went through it, they see all the complexity of it, whether it was a a birth or or moving houses or or whatever it was. Someone on the outside who didn't have to experience it could say, oh, well, that was such a great thing. And it was meant to be, or all these other sort of platitudes that are offered. I'm not saying that Israel is offering platitudes, but all I'm saying is that it's easier being someone on the outside. And sometimes, sometimes we can take a lesson from that. Those of us on the inside can say, well, I'll draw from their positivity because I'm sort of, I'm sort of too in it. I'm too into the, the complexity of it for me to be able to appreciate it in that kind of way. So I think that he's not only a foil, but he's there to sort of reflect back to us ultimately what we should hopefully take away from this episode, which is how unbelievable God is and how we were able to get out of Egypt and, right. and make it all this way in the desert and still be alive.
1: Yeah, hundred percent. I, I think, you know, you said the word positivity, I would even say it's not just positivity, it's clarity, right? That the people on the outside have a clarity almost, in this case a theological clarity. Other times, you know, I'll give a couple of other examples, an ethical clarity that Israel was lacking. And I think exactly what you're saying, it's sort of that, that foil character from the outside that, that almost highlights for us what we should be striving towards, or, or the direction in which we should be headed, or where we're lacking, really, ultimately. So I'll give a couple of other examples just uh, so we have, let's say even before Yitro shows up, his own daughter is a foil character of sorts, right? If you There's a really sort of enigmatic episode as Moshe is heading back after that major theophany at the burning bush where God says, I want you to go back and lead Israel and take them out of Mitzrayim, and Moshe's ambivalent, and is nervous for all the, you know, all the different reasons, and they're on the way back, and there's that bizarre episode where the pronouns are all very, very unclear, so no one's really <laughs> entirely sure what to make of it, but where it says that a malach comes, and wants to kill him, right? So is it Moshe? Is it the son that they just had together? But it says, you know, in that pasuk, Tzipora takes a tzor, a, a flint rock, and she gives a brit milah to her son. And again, I'm not, I, we don't have time to really delve into this story, but if we just even look at it superficially, here you have this person, Moshe, whose identity has been really sort of complicated and com- sort of a complex web of different identities. On the one hand, he was a Hebrew. Uh, he probably knew that he was a Hebrew based on his relationship to his mother at a young age, but then he was also being raised in the palace as an Egyptian. He identifies with the Hebrews that are out as slaves, but then he's also identified when he's at the well, the daughters of Yitro come home and say, Ish hitzilanu miyad Right. So we have this very, very clear sense that Moshe himself is is sort of, you know, exists betwixt and between, and it's Zipporah who, you know, I think the metaphor is so powerful, right? She takes this rock and cuts off the, does the the symbolic act of giving her son a Brit Milan, consecrating him to the Hebrews, is it's such an important episode Right? And she's sort of, again, that non-Israelite in the moment where the Israelite himself, is he able to do it? Is he not? She does it. And, and she sort of moves them from that place of, of, you know, sort of on the, you know, again, the metaphor of being on the road back to Egypt to fulfill his purpose as savior of Israel. She's the one that sort of pushes them in that direction.
0: I never thought about that, by the way. Thank you. I never thought about that. That's oh. <laughs> brilliant.
1: Yeah. thanks. And then, I mean, again, maybe her story came to me, maybe even, after looking at Rachav, there's always these these personalities that are the other, so to speak, so often pop up in this sort of liminal space where Israel is, you know, where Moshe on the personal level is betwixt and between. But if you think about, for example, Am Yisrael, we're about to leave the desert, we're hovering just on the boundary of the land of Canaan, Yoshua saying, you know, get ready, you're gonna go in, it's gonna be great, and he sends the spies. And so we have anyone who's familiar with Sefer Bamidbar. We get a little nervous when Israelites send spies into the land of Canaan for obvious reasons. And you know they meet this woman who again is such an important metaphor. Rachav, who's a zonah, and she lives. We're told in the just on, on the in the wall right of the city of Yericho, which is literally and figuratively the boundary between the what's outside and what's inside. Israel are still we're still the outsiders. We're meant to be the insiders in that land. And she's the quintessential outsider, the quintessential other, again, with a capital O, in every every possible formulation, right? It's a story being told from our perspective, and she's a Canaanite. In the patriarchal world, she's a female. And even in the community of females, she's a prostitute, so she's the other. And it's this woman, right, in the context of all of this again this liminal space are we going to go in are we going to be able to conquer the enemy are we going to be able to become the, the insiders and she of all people is the one that has the goal not just to save the spies and to stand up to the obvious powers that be but she says the words which are literally echo the words that we hear after Kriyat Suf and in Sefer Tvarin, she says uh, to the spies when they say you know why'd you save us she says Right, so there again, like you said, that positivity and that clarity of this person who is so, they're wondering if they're going to have what it takes to go in. And she's responding to them like, are you kidding? The reason I saved you because everyone knows that your God is going to fight for you. And, and she literally then goes on to list all of the miracles God had done for them and how all the nations are going to be quaking before them, which is what, you know, God predicted. And, you know, if you go through all of Tanakh, it's so often when we're reticent or when we're not sure. Think about Yonah, right, who tries to run from the word of God, and then he's sitting on this ship and the storm comes. And it's so obvious to the sailors that there must be a deity mad at him, right? To them it's such an obvious formula and Yonah was the one that thought that he could run away. In Ezra Nachhamia we have the backdrop of sort of this, this sort of hovering apathy of the people that didn't go back, and then you have this Persian king Cyrus saying, All these natan lai leave notes. You have this Persian non Israelite king who on the universal stage, and again, whether historically or not, it doesn't matter. The Tanakh sees him as the mouthpiece of God and the redemption of the Israelite people. You know, over and over and over we have this. Uh, I'll give you one last example, just because it's not just about theology. If you look at the story of Davina Batsheva, Right, so Uriah HaChiti, Uriah's not an Israelite, Uriah, who was the husband of Bathsheba, uh, who was out at war, and David tries to sort of get him back in, in this ruse to cover up for the affair and to cover up for the pregnancy. And, you know, the, the story, which is ultimately about the abuse of power um, with kings, which is sort of the natural, um, it's one of the pitfalls, you might say, of, of kingship entirely, and the Tanakh is very clear about that. So you have the beginning of the episode is David and he's sort of lounging in the afternoon on his, you know, t- having his siesta while his soldiers are out fighting the battles, which is initially why the king was appointed as a king, right, which is to go out before mm-hmm. them in war. And and then, you know, and again, he lures Uriah back. And the, the line that Uriah says when David says, you know, go home to your wife and, and take a break. And I'll just read you the Pasukh, Uriah says, Vayom ra Uriah el David ha'aron v'Yisrael v'yehuda yoshvin b'sukot v'adoni yo'av v'avdeh adoni al p'nei ha-sadeh v'ani avoo el b'iti l'echol v'lishtot v'lishka v'nishhti chayecha v'chayin av'shachat Right, so it's it's a really powerful Pasukh because Uriah is essentially listing every single thing that David was doing while his people were out at war. But again, that's why I, I use the word clarity, it's not just positivity. What Uriah is saying is what we as readers of Shmuel wish the king would be saying, right? This is, Uriah is behaving just like Yitro is behaving like the ideal Israelite. Uriah is behaving in so many ways like the ideal king, despite the fact that he's not the king, right? And so, you know, again, and we could go through so many examples. You have Zeresh when B'nai well, you know, when the Jews in, in Persia are not sure if they're gonna be saved, how they're gonna be saved. Esther herself is, is nervous. And then you have Zeresh, again unabashedly getting up there to Haman and saying you know dude you better watch out because if you mess with the Jews their god is gonna you know you're not you're not gonna be able to come back from it right so Zeresh is saying what we as the readers of Migilat Esther are looking for Esther already at that point to say um,
0: so what's interesting is also what Chazal do in most of these cases, right? Because what a Chazal <laughs> yes. do in most of these cases? They they convert them, correct? Right? They say that well, if they were so openly acknowledging the actions of God in the world, so this was obviously a sign that they that they converted. Correct. And I think that that's really interesting because everything you're saying right now really is to it pushes back on that kind of interpretation because the point is that because because they're not with us on the same team, right? We're able to look at that and say, wow, right. If they could see that from their from their other perspective, then that's supposed to be something that's supposed to be very powerful for us. Again, I'm not getting to the point of whether they did or didn't convert, but the chazal who are at that point in history, certainly trying to sort of conserve and consolidate that kind of religious energy within Jewish people. So Tanakh at at this point, is it a much more, I would say, yes, a, a little bit of a broader, even more universal perspective. You know, it's also fascinating because some of these people who say such beautiful, moving things about the work of God in this world are part of nations that are, are complete and total enemies, meaning in many of the cases that you brought, these are the enemy people, but but somebody of them is representing what we ideally should think or feel. And that itself is really, really revolutionizing in terms of the way that these different books of Tanakh can look at these people, meaning it creates tremendous nuance in terms of the fact, well, okay, well, the people of Amalek, which the Kenim, okay, these relatives somehow each draw are from, they're going to be uh, enemies of Am Israel. But but we still have Yitro as being this beautiful example of somebody who who's bringing this perspective that that we're supposed to be able to to learn from and look at as something ideal. So Dafka by keeping them as separates, as keeping them as others, it really highlights the the uniqueness of how Tanakh is able to present these these others, especially when they're part of people who are our biggest enemies.
1: Yeah, it's huge. And I think listen, I think it also. I actually i brought a quote that i came across years ago and i think what you're saying is so so important and the word that you you use which is i think the most important word uh when we're studying tanakh and particularly studying tanakh when it comes to you know the theme of this series which is identity and how do we understand ourselves and what does it mean to be a jew and what does it mean to how do we interact with others and how do we balance that you know on the one hand we need to distinguish ourselves from them behaviorally and in many ways also physically and on the other hand still recognize what is you know sort of very, very basic in Tanakh, which is the idea that all humanity is inherently equal, right? We, not, like, we don't have creation stories like so many other ancient Near Eastern creation stories where different human beings have different uh, inherent worths, or there's a hierarchy even within humanity. We all come from Adam and Chava. And so, you know, I think that balance, sort of balancing those two concepts is so critical. I, I saved the quote from years ago that I came across in a really, really excellent book on this topic, if anyone is interested. It's called, Yet I Love Jacob, Reclaiming the Biblical Concept of Election. It's by uh, Joel Kaminsky. And he wrote, and I think this is touching on exactly what you said. He said, the ability to sense one's chosenness and also to see one's character flaws is perhaps one of the greatest achievements of the Israelite religious mind. It creates a sense of ultimate meaning for one's nation, but it does so in ways that mitigate movement, this is my favorite part, (laughs) <laughs> towards an unfettered imperialism and triumphalism. And he goes on, he uses examples. Mm-hmm. He says, the story of Joseph and his brothers affirm that God does indeed mysteriously favor some over others, yet it also proclaims to the elect and the non-elect that that divine favor bestowed in election is not to be used for self-aggrandizement. Rather, election reaches its fruition in a humble yet exalted divine service that benefits the elect and the non-elect alike, which I think is one of the greatest <laughs> paragraphs that sort of summarizes you know that balance that you were talking about.
0: Yeah, I think that that's beautiful. I think also it's great because it sort of recalls some of the ideas that we were speaking about in the book of Rishith, which of course really wrestles with this idea of what it means to be within the Jewish people context, but what it means to be, as he says here, those who are chosen and those who are not chosen. But what's great about when we get to sort of the national plane in the book of Shemot and later on in all the other books that you mentioned and in all those examples you brought is that, well, we can learn to ba- ultimately balance what this idea is of, of being chosen as a people, but also having all these other voices that are meant to really inform us for how we should behave. There's something that gets sort of, the nuance gets filled in as we go along uh, to these other books, and I think that's a really, really beautiful, monumental point.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's that's really, really, um, again, sort of the, one of the most important threads that's woven through Tanakh, you know, I, I think I think today, for for a lot of reasons, and again, you know, we we don't have time to get philosophical. but I think a lot of uh, in many, many ways today, the notion of particularism, is sort of conflated with racism, right? And, and they're not the same thing. You could be particularistic without assuming that you're inherently superior. Nowhere in Tanakh do we talk about inherent superiority. We talk about an onus, we talk about a responsibility, we talk about a covenant, you know, but I think what these stories really remind us of is that A, every single human being needs to be looked at as an individual, right? Stereotyping on some level needs to occur Because as we said, you know, sort of at the outset of our discussion, in order to understand who we are, we need to understand who we are not. And sometimes that's done in, in broad strokes. But when it comes to individuals, there's no such thing as broad strokes, right? Every single individual is looked at for who they are and what they contribute, uh, to the world. Um, and, and, you know, it reminds us also, like I mentioned, you know, that covenant and that responsibility. That's not some, that, yes, on some level we're born into it, but on, at the same time, and this is what these personalities keep reminding us over and over, is that that's something we need to opt into. That's a responsibility we need to actively assume in an ongoing way. It's not something we can become complacent with, and it's not something that we could just assume, because I'm Israelite, because I'm Jewish, therefore I am, fill in the blank. Um, because we're Jewish, we have to be Jewish, and we have to act, and we have to do all of those things, you know, you mentioned Zechariah, do all of those things that enable us to be that Orla Goyim. And so I think that, you know, again, if people can read, there are so many stories we didn't get to mention, but to just read these stories with an eye towards the Tanakh, incorporating them because they're part of our story, not because they necessarily stand in opposition to, which is how we usually assume they, they should be read. I think that's really, really important.
0: Yeah. Thank you so much for this conversation. Really uh, enlightening and moving. And I think that it opens up a new way to look at stories that I think people with this new sensitive eye will be able to see in the future. So thank you so much. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. one-on-one and women's tour learning a small favor by sharing this podcast with family and friends so that we can reach new listeners. You can stream and download these episodes on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Matan's website. Don't forget to leave us a five-star review in the comments. Please send us any feedback at podcast.matan.org.il. That's podcast.matan.org.il. Thanks for listening, everyone.